The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. Psalm 23. If you have your Bible, do you open to Psalm 23? Psalm 23. We're going to be in verse 4 today, but since it's only six verses and so beautiful, I'm going to read the whole thing and then we'll jump in. Psalm 23 and verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God, we thank you for your word that has been read in our hearing. God, we thank you that you have inspired it by your Holy Spirit, that you have ministered to generations of your followers and to the world through such familiar and beautiful, comforting verses like Psalm 23. God, we thank you that your word that has been preserved for us is alive to do work inside of our hearts and minds this morning. God, I specifically pray for any person in my hearing who could describe their current circumstances in any meaningful way as a valley. God, I pray that they would have an encounter with you that would alter their disposition. God, that would give them endurance, that would infuse them with hope and confidence and courage. God, I thank you that because of who you are and what you have done, we have every reason to hope and every reason to keep moving forward. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, speak to every single one of us, those on the mountains, those in the valleys. Allow us to see Jesus more clearly. God, inspire us and strengthen our faith, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I started thinking about the, the valley a lot this week. It's kind of a funny thing for us Floridians, because uh, I don't know if you realize this or not, but Florida is flat. Did you know we have some valleys in Florida, though? If you Google it, there's like eight places called something valley. There's a place called Shark Valley. Shark Valley. How do the sharks get in the valley? You thought these wet valleys are bad. Our, our valleys have sharks. <laughs> Actually, there's no sharks in Shark Valleys. There are alligators, though. <laughs> Shark Valley's full of alligators in the Everglades. It's more of a depression. It's about 18 inches below sea level. <laughs> and it's actually just a bike path uh, through the Everglades. And I don't know how I got the name Shark Valley, but it is not very impressive. Um, I was born in uh, San Diego County, California, Fallbrook Hospital. Um, just My parents lived there briefly, just long enough for me to be born. Um, so... But uh, there was, there's a really well-known valley in Southern California, the San Fernando Valley. Anybody ever heard of it? In fact, probably the only way Americans use the term 
the valley without any explanation would be speaking of that valley, uh, particularly as it relates to girls to talk like this. Like, that's who we're talking about. She's from the valley, right? This was the valley. You guys like my valley girl? It didn't seem like it hit well, no? No? They're like, keep, keep with the villain accents. Better for you, yeah. Don't try to do girls, no, no good. I started thinking a lot about uh, the valley and... Um, you know, the, the valleys can be these punctuated periods of our, our lives that are low. They're low points, they're scary, they're dark and they're dangerous. A lot of times when we talk about a valley, it can be a point of trauma for us. It can be something that we went through and endured. And we also can find ourselves revisiting uh, seasons of life where we're in a valley, sometimes connected to that original trauma. Sometimes we get some drama and it triggers our trauma. And we go from a real valley we walk through where there was danger and there was hurt and there were wounds, and then we find ourselves in a proverbial, in a spiritual or mental valley just because of some trigger point connected to that trauma. And you can be going through life circumstances that are fine, and everything's fine on the outside, and yet you can be enduring through a valley on the inside. Maybe it can have something to do with something nobody else could perceive about you, some, some person, some saying, some thing, some event, and you find yourself in the middle of a vulnerable and scary place on the inside. And I know this happens in life because I'm alive. <laughs> I also know that beneath the surface of everyone's smiling face, uh, every single person in this room has to some degree suffered, experienced harm, pain, wounds, made severe mistakes that led to destruction in your own life, and we're all doing our best to keep putting one foot in front of the other, loving one another, trusting God, and continuing to endure. And this is a human experience. I started thinking, man, not everybody's going through a valley right now, but every single one of us knows what it is to walk through a valley. And so we read these words, we sing these songs, and while we may not have any physical valleys in our geographic region, uh, the analogy is not lost on us. These verses are so popular, they pervade uh, music and culture. I started just kind of thinking about all the movies, specifically war movies, where the 23rd Psalm is read in some scene. I don't know if those flood to your mind. Um, I was even thinking about um, Gangsta's Paradise. You remember Gangsta's Paradise? You have to say it with the A, Gangsta. It's not Gangster's Paradise. It was not written Gangster's Paradise. Seven of you know that song, you're shaking your head. It starts off as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Somebody rap for me. No, don't. Uh, just right out of this verse, uh, the opening lyrics uh, to Coolio's 90s pop rap. And we use different analogies to talk about it. We, um, we like to sanctify our valleys a little bit. We use different phrases like, um, you're in a pickle. That's a weird one, isn't it? In a pickle. <laughs> uh, or in a tight spot between a rock and a hard place. What are some of the other ones that we use that kind of like extend the valley metaphor? How about the, 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 the rough patch? Yeah, I heard that one. The horns of a dilemma. Where, where do these come from? Uh, sitting on a powder keg. <laughs> like, that's a wonderful word picture right there, isn't it? Out of the frying pan and into the... Right. All, all of us use these euphemisms, these analogies, because they describe for us um, some experience of life that has us in a low, dark, dangerous, perhaps lonely place. And David, 
saw this in connection to his shepherding days as uh, the valley. He amplifies that, the valley of darkness or deep darkness. There's a play on words there, and the reason it's translated in the King James and then in the ESV as the valley of the shadow of death is because the word for dark darkness is death darkness. It's the, it's the darkness from the nearness of death. And so this is something David was well acquainted with. I mean, think for just a minute if you follow his life at all, and it's a great study if you're going to go through the scriptures and try to follow someone's life to see a human experience. David's a great candidate. I mean, this guy is attacked, betrayed, maligned, uh, usurped. He, he experiences great loss, great pain, great anguish. He's been accused, punished, abandoned, controlled, manipulated, tempted, and he's failed. This is a man who knows what it's like to be in a valley of his own making and in a valley that he did not choose for himself. And he's the one who pens the words, these words of great courage and endurance. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I just thought it'd be really helpful for us to meditate on this verse in particular, instead of points and movement, to just kind of saturate ourselves in these phrases and think about them for a second. Uh, Even though, yea, in the King James, yea, though I walk, yet though I walk, even though, and I think that's so important for us to even think about that for a second, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we're living in a world that uh, we've become numb to this reality, but pushed in our direction every day are these messages that things can escape the evil of the world, if only. It's not even though, it's if only. And I think some of us have grown totally callous to the reality that there is a, there is a, a euphoric agenda being pushed on us that there could be a land and a world and an experience where there are no valleys, And so we hear politicians say things like, I'm going to shut down COVID. (laughs) COVID is a virus, right? You don't shut down a virus. You can't stop. And so you'll hear people, news anchors and um, celebrities, and they'll push an agenda that says, if we can just change this, then things will be okay. Equality for everyone. What world do you live in? Do you know that? There is no world where every, there is a quality of outcome for everyone. It does not exist. It doesn't exist. I have a brother who is 20 months younger than me. I am 6'4", and he is 5'9". How did that happen? Do you think that's fair? How do you think he feels about that, right? Right? We, we always joke with each other. I'd say, um, I'd say I, I got all the height, and he'd say, yeah, but you also got all the ugly, you know? So... <laughs> We, would, we always would tease each other. But we live in a world where it's not fair. Remember, life isn't fair. Do you remember that? And yet everything being sold to the world right now is a bill of goods that say we can make life fair. Life isn't going to be fair. The question of virtue and character is what you do in the face of inequality, not eliminating inequality through redistribution. That will never, ever work. And I love the reality of the scriptures because they don't pretend that this world is going to be okay. In fact, it's quite emphatic that it's not going to be okay, 
but the world to come is going to be the one where justice reigns and where everything is as it should be when every knee bows before the king and says, not my way, but your way. Not my definition of equal, but your definition of equal, right? And this is what God is working. And I love that the psalmist can say, even though I walk through the valley. Jesus said it this way in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Our world doesn't need a transformation. It needs to be overcome. And we have a king that has done that very thing. He's overcome every evil, every obstacle. And he is the one who sets hind's feet on high places. And our comfort is not to be found in God leveling life. Our comfort is to be found in the fact that he is with us in the valley. This has always been the comfort. And anybody who says differently, life is pain, highness. Whoever says differently is selling something. To quote the princess bride, you're welcome. Think about that, even though. And I I love even though I walk, I walk. I don't know if you've connected with this reality in Psalm 23, but David's using this shepherding analogy. And this is a slow, arduous, on foot type of movement, but the whole Psalm is characterized by the movement. And and David plays off of this in terms of how we live our lives. Oftentimes in the scriptures, our life lived through our decisions, our passage through time is, is described as a walk. You see that? Maybe you're familiar with Ephesians chapter four and verse one. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, Look where Paul's walking got him. Is that, is that fair? A guy that's done nothing wrong is in jail for trying to tell all people about God's love for them and his plan to save them. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk, live your life in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And what's that look like towards other people? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He says, listen, God's putting the world together by his Holy Spirit. And when we are one, we are meant to treat each other with humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love, with an eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The spirit is the one who brings this unity together, and, but it's upon us to maintain it. I tell people all the time, the church of Jesus is a Ford and not a Honda. Let that sink in for a second. You, you can get a Honda Accord and you can drive it for 170,000 miles, never change the oil. And it'll make weird ticking sounds. That thing will run forever. If you buy a Ford Focus, you will get exactly 7,000 miles before your engine blows because Fords require maintenance. But I tell you here, as a proud Ford owner, if you will just change that oil and keep those filters clean, a good Ford will run forever. Can I get amen? You're like, not on that one, not on the Fords. Nope. <laughs> GM guy right here, not going to amen. See, the church requires maintenance, and it's upon us to do that maintenance. This is in our relationships. This is part of, as we live our lives, as we walk alongside of one another, we're going to have some friction. The question was, what do you do with it? Do you get low to lift other people up? Do you treat people with gentleness, patience, love? Do you bear with each other? There's some bearing with that has to happen because we change really slow, don't we? I always ask people, if you could wave a magic wand or snap your fingers, what would you change? They're like, them, right? (laughs) Yeah, that would be easy. Good luck with that. No, it's God's calls us to bear with, to get up underneath. And 
and it's because he's doing something to put the world together. Look at all this one language. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And think about Paul writing this to a church where if you were a Christian in the first century, you didn't just get to go to a different church when people rubbed you the wrong way like you do now. Let that sink in for a minute. I'm, I'm all about churches doing stuff together. We are like all about that. And uh, regularly I interact with people that are like, they're, they're hanging out with these groups of churches and they go to a church and they like, they like it better or it's a better fit for their children or there's something about it. And they have this like guilt to like go be a part of other, another church. And I have these conversations with people and they're like, I feel like we need to go over here for a while and it's not against you. Listen, I don't take it personally. You know why? Because there's one church, one body. We're all in this together. We don't have enough room for everyone anyway. So go, love Jesus. Go, go serve with those people. Like make some room for others. There's lost people that need your seat. So yes, if they have room for you, go find a home because we're all part of the same thing. Don't you know it? We're not in competition with each other. This is not a race. This is, this is, this is one purpose. Now listen, don't run off mad. I tell people all the time, don't leave angry. Just leave, right? <laughs> don't. Don't leave angry because we're not meant to be bumping off of each other and separating. I mean, there were no options. You know, if you were a Christian in the first century and you used to be a Jew and now you're a Christian, well, you can't go be a Jew again and the Gentiles don't have nothing to do with you. There's one church, one option. And I think that force kind of pushed some people down. Now, don't start feeling weird feelings about the last church you went to and the feelings you're feeling about this one. I'm just trying to tell you that we are all in this together. Where you worship doesn't matter. Who you worship does. Can I get in? And so we walk. We walk. And this is where life and character are developed. Life and character are developed in the movement and not in the moment. Do you know that? There's not going to be a magical moment where you arrive mature and wonderful and beautiful. But in every step you take, this is where you get to grow a little bit closer to God and a little bit more like him and a little bit more patient and a little bit more gentle and a little bit more humble. And it's in that character development that happens through our walk. And even though we walk sometimes through the valley, we have to learn the lessons that God wants to teach us there. And that is that people are more important than things. People are more important than positions. People are more important than power. People are more important than prosperity. People are more important than problems. And God cares more about how we treat the people around us than even who the people around us are. Do you know that? And so let's be a part of the one thing that God is doing and let's be eager to maintain how God is putting all this together. Even though I walk through the valley, I love this, this phrase, because it tells us that God will, in fact, lead you through the valley. Do you know that? Listen, some of the youngest people in this room, 10, 11, 12 years old, um, the, the road before you is ones of ups and downs. Can I get the old people to say amen? amen. You're like, I'm not old. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I don't like Fords and I'm not old. God will lead you through the valley. In verse three, we read, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Do you know that God is capable of doing more for righteousness sake in your heart and in your life during a journey through the valley than he ever does in green pastures or beside still waters. And because God is committed to your transformation, to a total restoration and overhaul, he will lead you through the valley. But I also want to be really clear. God will never leave you, lead you to the valley or leave you in the valley. God will only ever always lead you through the valley, and by being your leader and shepherd, he will be with you in the valley. 
We need this because in the valley, we feel alone. Just naturally, because of our circumstances, we feel isolated, disconnected, in danger. We have these feelings that rise up in us of what do I do to take care of this myself? We feel feelings of abandonment. Is anybody there? Does anybody care? Where are you, God? All these feelings come. And if we listen to those voices of those feelings, we will feel, feel that God is far when in fact God is near because his promise is to lead us, walk with us through the valley. He doesn't leave us alone. Alone is a, is a bad feeling. Uh, my dad, he's here today, so I can talk about him. Uh, he used to do this prank on us. Uh, There's seven of us kids, and we'd go to church in our station wagon, and then on the way home, we'd stop at a grocery store, and he used to do this every single time. Somebody would run into the grocery store to get something, and you would go into the store, and then he would just leave. He would just leave you there all by yourself. And he wouldn't leave, like, for good, but he would, like, drive the station wagon around the back of the shopping center and, like, peer out around the corner. And all of us who were remaining in the car would watch one of us, like, frantically looking through the parking lot. Where are they going? Holding groceries, you know. And he would just wait and laugh. And, and, and then we'd finally, like, see him. Oh, there you are. <laughs> gotcha. It's such a terrible feeling. Uh, it's super fun if you're in the car, though. I will tell you, if you're one of the ones in the car... All of the vengeance you have towards your siblings is getting worked out in those moments of their sheer terror. You're like, oh, you deserve this so much. We should leave you here for hours. Let them walk home, dad. That's what we would do, you know? Uh, Being left alone is like not a good feeling. Uh, We're mindful of this, Tiffany and I, because uh, our kids are getting to the age where we can leave them alone, which means date nights can resume, right? So our oldest daughter's 12 years old. I was ready when she was eight, you know? I was like, they're fine. Lock the doors. They're going to be fine. Um, but so we've been kind of waiting until it was legal. That's 12. If you're going to stay home with, with their siblings. Uh, but I'm like really excited about the, the, the idea of being able to just leave them all there. But you, you navigate this if you're a parent of small children or a grandparent of small children. Now, don't judge me, but you always have that like, what am I going to do when I have to do something really quick? You, you know, when you have a couple small kids and there's a five-point restraint involved and you have to run into a store for one thing and the work of getting those kids out of the car and into the store and dealing with them into the store and then getting back to the car and getting them in the car, you're just like, just lock them in there, right? Now, oh, I can already feel the judgment. You guys, are, that was heavy. You're like, oh, no. No, I, I leave the car running. They're restricted. You're like, you leave the car running? Some of you were like, of course you do. No, how could you do that? You crack the windows. I'm like, they're not a dog, they're a kid. Like, you don't just crack the windows and leave them in there waiting for someone to come by and smash your window to save them. No, you leave them in there. And so I got the, I got the Ford truck with the lock and the keypad on the side. Isn't that brilliant? I don't know why all cars don't have the keypad on the side, but you can leave the car running, kids in there. And so you have this like tug of like, do I leave them? And so some of my kids are like, just leave me your phone, I'll be fine. You know, like, they're just in there. And then you get those kids that are like, no! And there's nothing worse than being in a parking lot, people watching you leave a screaming child in a car, okay? So you learn your lesson. The reality is like, God doesn't ever leave us alone. That feeling you feel of sheer terror, it's not God leaving you in the car for a minute. He literally is always with you, always watching over you, never leaves your side And the feeling of his distance is only that, a feeling. And so he leads us through the valley. Not to the valley. He doesn't want you to live there. Even for those of you who are experiencing uh, chronic pain, even even diseases that are going to end in your death, if if that's the diagnosis, God is leading you through that. 
because all of us are being led through a door and that final door is death. But he's doing a work in us that brings us through that door, death proof, to emerge on the other side and to be with him forever. And so every little valley you walk through and even death itself is merely a valley that God walks us through. This is why Hebrews 13, five to six says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Throughout the ages, the solution to every problem is money. It always has been. Uh, I've always asked, asked people all the time, and the number gets bigger the older people get. I say, what amount of money would change your life? You say that to a six-year-old, they're like, $100 changed my life. You say that to a middle school, they're like, $1,000 would change my life. And by the time they're thinking about driving, they're like, $10,000 would change my life. Well, those of you who are of a certain age here, you're like, that wouldn't do anything really meaningful at all for me at this point. That number gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the love of money is not money. The love of money is the feeling you have about what money will do for you, and then therefore what you are willing to do to get it to absolve those feelings of fear. That's the love of money. You can have the love of money and have no money. Did you know that? This isn't a thing about rich people. This is a thing about heart. This is about what's going on in your heart about where the solution to your problem is. And the author to, to the Hebrews says, uh, that feeling will do nothing for you. And in fact, people with great wealth have miserable lives and walk through valleys just the same. Do you know that? I've seen those stickers that say, I know that money won't solve all my problems or make me happy, but I would like the opportunity to find out for myself, <laughs> right? That's that feeling speaking to you. It's saying, no, 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 it would make a difference. Um, but it doesn't, because money does not deliver. Money does not deliver, but Jesus does. And so we can say, the Lord is my helper. Whether you are a thousandaire or a millionaire, you need the Lord as your helper. He leads me through the valley. Hmm. The shadow of death is an interesting one. We'll get to that, but... You are with me. Think about this for a second. I walk, you are with me. This one never ceases to amaze me that you are with me. And this is part of the reason we've chosen Psalm 23 for the Christmas season. And that's because the good news about God becoming man is that he would be with us. Not just during his life through his son Jesus on this earth. He was God with us, Emmanuel. He, he pleased as man with men to dwell. He came into this world to be with us, physically with us, to be connected to our human experience, to endure the difficulties of a broken world so that he can sympathize with us in our weakness, to become our great high priest, and more importantly, a sacrificial lamb, so that by his substitution, he died that we might live. This is God with us. This is what the Christmas story is really all about. And I love the fact that Jesus came as a baby. I was talking to the youth group this past Wednesday about these different times in the Old Testament where there was an appearance of God, and it was a little vague exactly what was going on here, but you would have uh, the Lord or the angel of the Lord appear, and it was a physical form, and sometimes even three, three men. The angel of the Lord appeared, and two with him, 
And you're like, so these three people appear, or we have this, this shady figure called Melchizedek, the, the great high priest without lineage. No one knows who his father and mother is. He's in and he's out, and Abraham tithes to him, and, and Jesus is a priest like that, the author of Hebrews says. And so you have these, uh, theologians call them Christophanies. These are like pre-carnation uh, arrivals or appearances of God in human form, a Christophany, an appearance of the Christ. And, and yet, it's when he comes to save us that he doesn't appear in physical form as a king or as a priest or as an angel, but he's born into this world the way all of us were, as a helpless infant. This gives me a lot of hope when I think about parenting. I think about Mary, this young girl, uh, no parenting experience, and she is chosen to be the mom of God. And she even got him lost once. That's in there. That's encouraging, right? Where's, what'd you do with the savior of the world? I thought you had him. I'm like, I'm doing okay. I feel okay by myself at this point. You know, I'll leave him in the car. He'll be fine. <laughs> but the, the, the comfort is that you are, you are with me. Matthew 1, 22, 25. All this summation, Mary's angelic visit, Joseph's dream took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 24, when Jesus or Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. I always thought it was interesting that they didn't call his name Emmanuel. I know some Emmanuels but they called him Jesus. This is what the angel of the Lord said his name would be. And it's the same as the Old Testament figure, Joshua, Yeshua. And it means God saves. And so we have a God who's not just with us commiserating. He's not just going, yeah, this is terrible. You're right. This is awful down here. I hate this. It's really a drag. It's kind of a valley. No, he's the God who's with us to save. He is Jesus. Our God saves. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I have a bunch of stuff I just skipped right there because I don't think it'll be profitable and it will we'll get me on a rabbit trail that will get me in trouble and take off some people. So you're welcome for that. I don't know if you saw that. That's what happens when I'm going, don't do it, don't do it. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is a tricky one because um, this is where the shepherd analogy can be lost on some of us. Um, I've read a lot of different positions on what these items are. I, here's a picture. This is what typically, if you're not a shepherd, um, a shepherd might have, one or both of these implements, one being a six or seven foot, very lightweight, uh, narrow in diameter, inch, inch and a half rod with a, a, a bend in it. This would be, you, you would look for certain branches and certain types of wood that were very, very hard, uh, but also light. They would have some of these um, curves already in them. And then there was methods that these ancient shepherds used uh, through getting the wood wet and bending it. And they would get these crooks kind of just the way they wanted. Sometimes even with a little turned up end, that would hang a, a lantern on there for, for nighttime. And so they would stick their staff into the ground and they would hang a lantern and it would provide light. And that, that, that crook at the end was made either the right size to get a sheep around the neck or around the back leg in order to pull them to safety. Uh, shepherds would use these for uh, just dozens and dozens and dozens of different types of tasks from walking to leaning, scooping. When little ewe lambs were born, uh, the shepherd wouldn't want to touch them because if the shepherd's scent ended up on the ewe lamb, sometimes the mother would reject the ewe. And so the, the, the shepherd would catch this, this lamb that was, that was born and then kind of deliver it over to its mom and put it in the right place. And if it was left, if she left it and moved on, he would, he would bring it to her. And so there was all these different uses. And the staff was this kind of like visible um, 
picture of, of the shepherd. I mean, you saw Jesus say, my sheep know my voice. And so the sheep would be very well acquainted with the sound of the shepherd. But based on his staff, they would also be uh, accustomed to the look of this particular staff. In fact, every staff was different. It was kind of like a cowboy hat. You know, there's like rules about what you do with a cowboy hat. You don't put somebody else's cowboy hat on. That's off limits. There's ways you set it down. There's places you put it. And a staff was a similar, this is my staff. There are many like it, but this one is mine. You know, that was kind of the idea. And so each shepherd had a staff. And this provided great comfort to the sheep when they were near enough to the shepherd to see the shepherd's staff. They knew that my shepherd is there and he will keep me safe. He's He's got his implement of, of authority, of leadership. But then lots of shepherds also had a second item, and that was uh, the rod, which was more like a club. And so it was short. It was like 24 to 30 inches, he- heavier on one end. And this was a weapon. <clears throat> this was a weapon that was used to, to bludgeon uh, predators. This was uh, a, a weapon that was used uh, for the protection of the sheep, sometimes to, to rustle in tall grass. And, and this was kept at the shepherd's side. This was only ever to be used on predators. And there's a lot of weird uh, sermons that I've heard that kind of equate the rod and or the staff to the discipline of God and God like striking sheep and breaking their legs. And there's all this stuff, this anecdotal stuff about how God kind of punishes us or hurts us or maims us for our ultimate good. None of that is in the text and none of that is in the context. And I don't know where this stuff comes from, but people without sheep come up with some really weird ideas about what God is like. And uh, nothing about God beating you with a big stick um, makes you feel comforted, right? Can you think about that for a second? You're like, if that's how that's used, that thing goes in the air and everybody winces. Ah! The reality here is that these are for the protection of the sheep, the direction of the sheep, the provision of the sheep to remind them of the nearness of the shepherd. And so when David considers how sheep feel by the nearness of the rod and the staff, they feel cared for and safe. And so when David then looks not as a shepherd, but as a sheep to the great shepherd of our souls, the Lord, he says, oh, you are powerful and mighty to save. You lead like nobody else. You get out in front and you protect us and you put yourself in harm's way so that we are safe. You are the one who is perceptive of all dangers and we can just be little sheep doing our little thing and just follow you where you go. And even though we get uh, to the valley, you won't leave us in the valley, you're gonna bring us through the valley. And when I consider your tools, they make me feel safe and comforted. And this is what Jesus got, got talking about. We read John 16, 33. Remember John 14, when this section starts, Jesus knows he's going to leave and his disciples are going to feel abandoned. And he says, listen, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He says, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper. There's that word we just saw. To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you They've been around the miraculous work of God, the presence of God, but because Jesus had not died and risen, they have not had their sins atoned for, and so they are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit at this point. But he says, he will be in you, and that's what every single Christian has to receive from God, is the nearness by his spirit of another helper, one just like God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus, our Savior. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, The world will see me no more. And so his death, resurrection, and ascension are imminent. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Isn't that beautiful? Mm. 
And so we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and we fear no evil because you are with me. I mentioned that word um, shadow of death or deep darkness. That's a really interesting image. It brings us to this, this concept of, of something that's imminent, an imminent threat very near to us. And so you get darkness that comes from death. You ever been close enough to something for its shadow to fall on you? In the, um, in the wintertime, we go down to the beach whenever it's warm, warm enough to go there after work, and we'll go down there, but the sun's setting. It'll cast a big shadow from the condos. And so if you don't, if you don't set up in the right spot before long, the shadow, the temperature in the shadow gets way colder than being in the sunshine. And so you find yourself just moving out of the shadow of the condos so that you can stay warm for your afternoon beach because we are in Florida and we get really weak. We think 52 degrees is freezing. And uh, even though the sun is out, we're getting seasonal affect disorder. We're like, when is summer coming? And people, are, people in Philadelphia are like, I'm going to kill you. You're just, it's, it's gray there from October to May. And they're, you know, I don't know. I don't know how you do it. But we're down there where you got that condo kind of looming and that shadow overtakes you. And there's two things about that that are important. One is that God will lead you through stuff where what is very near to you feels like death. It feels like the end of something. It feels like maybe the end of a relationship, the end of something beautiful that you love, the end of an era, maybe the end of a life, maybe the end of your life. And yet, because of who God is and that he's with us, it is not the substance of that thing, but it is merely the shadow of that thing. I love the way 19th century preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, it is not the valley of death, but the valley of the shadow of death. For death in its substance has been removed and only the shadow of it remains. Nobody is afraid of a shadow. A shadow cannot stop a man's pathway even for a moment. The shadow of a dog cannot bite. The shadow of a sword cannot kill. The shadow of death cannot destroy us. Let us not therefore be afraid. I will fear no evil. And this is how having God with you as your shepherd transforms your experience of the valley. Even death becomes merely the shadow of death. This calls for two things. One, I think it calls for courage. My fear for our world as I look at it is it is a world that is characterized by fear and not courage. The good news though is that courage always has as its backdrop fear and danger. Uh, It's not courage if you're fine. You know what I mean? Um, You're not being courageous when you're playing a video game. You're like, I'm going to beat this. I'm not going to, I'm down to one life, but I'm going to persist. That's not real. Okay. You have nothing to be fearful of, but when you are facing down real circumstances where a real threat of real danger is upon you and something good could come to an end, or you could experience something uh, negative, you have to, in order to endure, have courage. And, And I'm, I'm eager for people, uh, especially young people, to show up with some courage. Do you guys realize last week we, we saw the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. Uh, the Japanese Empire attacked our naval base at Pearl Harbor. Th- almost 3,000 people killed, and it ushered us into World War II. And we just, ex- we just passed the 80th anniversary. But I think about those teenagers, 16, 17, 18 year olds in 1941, who found themselves in 1944 on June the 6th, storming the beaches of Normandy, many to their sudden and immediate death. And what was that generation characterized? We call them the greatest generation. Why? For their courage. 
They weren't any different than any of us, except they were willing to go into harm's way for the good of other people and, like our Christ, to lay down their lives for the freedom and safety of the nation they loved. And we need this courage. You will not find this courage because you are smart enough, good-looking enough, successful enough, liked enough, in the right circle. Have you been through this before? You're experienced enough? No, you will only find courage when you know the presence of your shepherd. It's because you are with me, I will fear no evil. No wonder this psalm ends up in so many war movies, and I'm sure it has been read in so many dangerous settings to comfort those who are going into harm's way. And so I want to wrap up just asking you to consider the valleys that we walk through. The worship team can join me, and we're going to close with a song. But I started thinking about this this week, about the valleys we go through, and some of them are really light and trivial, um, but they're valleys nonetheless. Tiffany and I were just rejoicing yesterday. We, we have like this, this uh, idyllic, beautiful life in our, this season of life for us has been very, very special with our young children and everybody's healthy and happy and whole. People say, how's everybody doing? I say, happy, healthy, and whole. It just, it's just been beautiful. And yet night after night after night, we just lay down in bed and go, when does it stop? You know, like it's just one thing after the next, after the next, after the next. We had a crazy busy life and a crazy busy week. Then you're doing all these things and you want to do these wonderful things for your kids. So last night we were doing yet another thing and it's 7.30 and we need to get home and get everybody in bed. And one of our children's like, please, can we go to the Christmas experience at First Baptist Church, please? I'm like, I want to give them the world, but I also want to go to bed. Can I get Amen. And so I'm like, all right, well, we're already, we're already out here and let's just, let's just go do it. And what was going to be 30 minutes turned into an hour and a half. But I'm like, my children, my, my, my 10-year-old daughter wants to see people dressed up as the nativity on a hayride. That's what she's asking for. How do you say no to that, right? And yet we get in the car and the kids are like, when's the next thing we're doing? And both of us are like, we don't know. <laughs> now I have to look at the calendar, probably tomorrow. Because oh! it's just one thing after the next, after the next. And you give these little doses of valley. You're like, I gotta go. I got. Oh, I shouldn't have said yes to that. And like everything's amazing right now. And still, here you are in this little calendar valley, going help. You know. And I don't know you. Some of you are walking through a serious valley. I know some of the valleys that some of you are walking through right now, and they are the valley of the shadow of death. But what sustains us is that God is with me. Do you know? I don't know if you ever noticed this before, this ever occurred to you, it was news to me and I've been studying the Bible for two decades. That word that is translated in Psalm 23, the shadow of death, is used in one other place to describe a particular region in the nation of Israel. And that region is the lands of Naphtali and Zebulun. These were two of the tribes of Israel who were in the, they were granted in, in the uh, promised land, the furthest north region. Now, because the people of Israel did not obey God to drive out the inhabitants of that land as a judgment of God, that particular region ended up mixed with both Jews and Canaanites. That is also geographically the only place where warring nations who are gonna take over Jerusalem, which is far in the south, can easily bring an army. And so all throughout Israel's history, there was this particular set of real estate in the north of Israel that saw, uh, that saw attack and siege and the destruction of their homes and pillaging and raping and all sorts of horrific experiences. And they're mixed in with godless people who hate them and oppose them and attack them and they're harassed, these particular tribes. And in Isaiah chapter nine, the good news begins by being described for coming to these people. And it says in verse one, but there will be no gloom 
for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. You know where it is? We know it as Galilee of the nations. Look at this poem. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, Salmavet, the shadow of death, on them light has shone. Verse six, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It was no accident that Jesus was from Galilee, in fact, based his operations there, because it's the valley of the shadow of death. And if our Jesus chose to spend his earthly ministry in the most dark and dangerous part of Israel's geography, you have every reason to believe he is going to immediately join you in whatever valley that you are walking through. He has delivered humanity from the valley of brokenness and sin and the harassment of our enemy. He has broken the curse of sin and the power of the devil, and he will deliver us safely home. He will never leave your side, and you will find with the psalmist, you can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Amen. God, I pray for every person in my hearing. God, I pray for those who are in a valley without you because they have not turned to you in faith. God, I pray that through these words, they would experience something of your heart and your power to save, your plan to not only save the world, but to save them specifically, God. And I pray that they would hear your voice calling their name to come in through the door who is Jesus, into your sheepfold, into the kingdom of heaven, to know you as the good shepherd, to walk with them through every valley. And God, I pray for every single one of us who are disciples of Jesus, followers. God, we are all walking through something and it will always change, but what we can count on is not a dark future, but on a bright light in a dark place because you are with us. God, I pray that you would make us a courageous people who endure, who move forward, who trust in you, who trust in you even through death's door itself, knowing that you will never leave us or forsake us. We love you, God, and we thank you for who you are to us. In Jesus' mighty name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. As we close with this last song, which is a new song, I'd love for you to let the words kind of wash over you and have a conversation with the Holy Spirit in your own life. He knows what your val valleys are, I do not but let him minister to you through these words. Would you stand with me?